This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman, in for Catherine Cruz. Aloha. President Biden is spending part of today on Maui. He's due to arrive, as you've been hearing at this hour. He and the First Lady will see the damages from the air from a helicopter. We'll get perspective on the ground from people who have been devastated by these fires. They'll also meet with first responders, state and local officials, and volunteers. You can catch up with more on his activities later today on All Things Considered and tomorrow on Morning Edition. Earlier this morning, we spoke with the director at the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Sherman Gillums Jr. works in the Office of the Administrator. He's the director of the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination. He's in Washington, D.C., and his primary focus this morning was giving some context for Joe Biden's visit. The President of the United States and First Lady are on their way with the FEMA Administrator to go into the affected area to survey wildfire damage and talk to residents about about their experiences, as well as engage the emergency responders who are there as we move ahead into recovery. And right now, it's really just about continuing to have people exercise caution, listen to the official reports about what to do next. We want to get as many people registered as possible so we can begin the recovery process for those folks who might have lost property and as we know, there were other other losses as well, loss of life. And so we just stand with the folks in Maui on their path to recovery, which will be a long one. You know, people I know are very appreciative of your work here on Maui over the weekend. So FEMA on the ground, some of the, the operations at UH Maui and those, those long tables and helping people who are able to come in. Does FEMA have the ability and plans to go mobile with some of its resources on Maui in terms of being able to meet people where they are? One of the best tools we have in the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination are the disaster survivor assistance teams. They canvas neighborhoods. They literally meet people where they are. We, we train them before they go out to understand the nuances of disability, you know, how to talk about certain disabilities. Believe it or not, there are people who don't regard themselves as disability, like my old grandfather who couldn't hear and, and probably qualified as deaf, but he didn't consider himself disabled. So there's a there's a way that we have to engage this community and, and be mindful of some of those things. And so once we do that, we set them off into the neighborhoods and areas that were impacted to find people who may not know that there is assistance out there for them. And as soon as we get them registered, it, it opens up a whole a litany of other ways that we can assist them. But the most important thing is to get to them. I appreciate the effort to, to connect. You know, we got a water crisis going on in upcountry Maui. Are, are FEMA folks able to get up there to help? Even the water being boiled doesn't do anything. It's, people can't bathe in it. Is there anything that FEMA can, can do in the short term here? Well, the most important aspect of that situation is to make sure people are educated on the risk, especially people with disabilities who rely on clean water, not just for their uh, their hygiene, but for their health in many cases. And most people, it's the same case. And we just want to make sure that people know to boil water uh, to be safe when they're when they're undertaking those activities. But it's really a whole of government response. FEMA is just one dimension of multiple agencies that have a role to play in that aspect of the uh, of the disaster. So we're relying on our federal agency partners to uh, you know help ensure that we're up on the latest where the water crisis is concerned. But uh, but a lot's happening all at the same time. So and, and that's just one part of it. And I appreciate there's a lot going on. And I know I'm talking to you from Washington D.C. But this is a water situation where even people boiling the water doesn't help. I just mean right. in terms of physical relief and help with some of these large federal resources that FEMA has and working with local partners, appreciating that piece of it, but just to get expertise to right. these areas, which a lot of times are are more difficult to reach than some places. Exactly right. And and when you're in a, in a life-saving mission, you know, we, we try not to let anything go by the wayside. And certainly we want to make sure that the consequences of the disaster that can be prevented are prevented. And, and so that's that's job one. And again, it's going to be a long process. 
No, appreciate that. Uh, you know, your background also includes a lot of work with, with mental health. You led operations for National Alliance on Mental Illness. And that is such a crucial part, again, over the long haul here. What can FEMA do to help in this area, and especially over the long term? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because there is a disaster distress helpline that I want to ensure your listeners take note of. Uh, can I give you that number right now? Please do. The number is 1-800-985-5990. Again, that's one 800 985-5990. There are counselors available 24-7 for folks who may uh, require American Sign Language. There's an option to access the service that way, but we want to make sure that folks know that we see them not only within the context of surviving the disaster, but the long-term consequences are also important to consider. And so I hope that people will use that helpline to not just recover physically in terms of what they possess and, and lost, but, uh, but mentally and psychologically, that's an important aspect that can be easily underappreciated. Sherman, thanks very much for your time, and, and thank you for the help that uh, FEMA is bringing to the folks who, who need it on Maui. Appreciate that very much. Aloha. Thank you, Bill. I, I appreciate it, Bill. Aloha. Sherman Gillums, Jr., from the Office of the Administrator of FEMA, Director of the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination. In one sense, the president is the latest representative of the federal government to come to Maui. The latest reports put the overall number of federal workers now on island at about 1,000. Roughly half are search and recovery teams and those with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Others are with groups ranging from the Small Business Administration to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Department of Agriculture, and more. Over the weekend, Congresswoman Jill Takuda and her office had planned to have a town hall to hear from local residents on the west side of Maui about their concerns. But it turned out there was a much more basic need, a whole series of basic needs. And so they changed the event and scheduled it to start at 1 in the afternoon on Saturday. I showed up in the middle of the afternoon to what was a packed event in Kihei, aimed at helping meet those needs. We spoke with the congresswoman just after they wrapped that up at the end of what turned out to be a long and intense afternoon. You know, we really didn't know what to expect when we decided to pivot from a town hall in Kihei to a federal resource fair, bringing our, you know, our services closer to the people that needed them the most right now. And we were just overwhelmed. When we drove up, there was a gentleman there who said he'd been here from 6 a.m., because he just wanted to make sure that he could get his, his passport and his social security. And I was talking to others who had come literally hours before the start. And then I, I would say we had hundreds, upwards of 300 easily that were here. Some have said it was probably close to five, uh, but just the need was so great. Uh, and people were just so um, appreciative of the fact that there could be one place where they could you know, apply for a new passport, social security card, apply for SNAP, you know, find out about housing services, talk to the VA, all of these different things in one place and really, you know, um, start to think about what's next. That idea of what's next and also connecting with federal resources, we're at a point now in terms of a pivot or transition from that initial numbing mm -hmm. shock and terrible, horrible initial reaction and moving towards looking at the longer haul with this. No, it it really is. And, and you know, we have to recognize that people are at different stages of, 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 the pro, of the grieving process. I mean, that's really what this is. And so, you know, a lot of what today was too is, yes, it was looking to the future and, you know, getting that passport and social security card. But what struck me the most was, um, you know, the fact that we were able in many cases to take the time to talk to them about how it is that they got here. What brought them here? And so a lot of the conversations I had with folks um, was about, you know, their current housing situation, you know, the friends that they were looking for. I, I, I spoke with one woman who still cannot find her husband. 
and you know guided her through the process of some other benefits she might be able to apply for but more importantly just talking to her about how can we continue to look um, and for me it was how do we take care of you take care of you doing during what is an absolutely unthinkable um, time in your life but so much of you know looking forward we have to remember is really truly understanding with compassion and empathy how they got to be here uh, so we can never forget that part so you know I really appreciate the fact that today all the agencies that were here all the volunteers they understood that this was a much about being supportive and being a listening ear and a warm, a warm hand to take people through the process as it was to get replacement documents and apply for benefits. And how do we best keep continuing to listen to community voices? I, I don't think, first of all, we can ever listen enough. We talk a lot. We, we think we know the answers and we we, we push forward ideas and, and potential solutions, sometimes we have to just shut up and listen. And the people will tell us what they need. The people will tell us where they're hurting. Um, it's so important that we do that. Um, my, my big hurt over today was that I was in Kihei, to be very honest, when I know that the need is truly also in West Maui um, for folks that have been unable to get down to different services and be able to get the help that they need. We have so many that mobility is an issue, transportation is an issue, um, and they need our help as much as anything. So um, we will do this again next week, Saturday here, because we did not finish the work. We have so many people who still need passports and social security, other services as well. But my, my full on goal is how do we get into um, Lahaina and West Maui? How do we get to upcountry where people need the help and they may not have the ability um, to come down um, to where we are. We've got to start meeting them where they're at. That point of connecting people with where they are, a lot of federal resources starting to roll in now. How are those resources connected with people where they are? You know, that's always the thing. Sometimes the federal money <laughs> comes in like a, a giant tsunami, right, uh, into a community. We saw that with COVID, quite frankly. And it's it, it's a large amount of resources and, and money and supports from all these different agencies. We have to make sure that people don't get swept up or lost in it. We need to make sure it does, in fact, connect with people where they're at. Um, we also have to be careful because, as we know, with a lot of resources, whether it's public or private, it pulls back like a tsunami do, right? It's an in and out. And so how do we really make sure that um, the support and help people need, especially from the federal government, is for the long term. This is not a, a crisis that will go away when all of the remains are recovered and we reunite with our loved ones. This is not a disaster that will go away when we even clear to ground. This is a generational uh, challenge that we are facing with a generational crisis that, quite frankly, though, if any state and community um, is able to rise up um, and, and recover and rebuild even better, um, it's our Maui community. Anything else you want to add? I would just say a big mahalo to all of our federal agents, our partners, our volunteers that came out today. They, they signed up for this, not knowing how many people will show up. And we had so many people here asking for help and support. And they just stepped up and absolutely delivered and, and gave so much um, to make sure that everyone here got help that they needed. And you know, while we wish we could do even absolutely more, so many of them signed up to be back here again next Saturday. So um, we will continue to really work so hard to make sure that we are getting out to where people are, meeting them where they're at, and making sure that the folks that need our support and help um, from all levels of government can in fact get that help that they need. Mahalo for the work that you're doing and for taking a moment with us. Thank you. That was U.S. Representative Jill Dakuta, Congressional District 2, speaking to us after the Federal Resource Fair she helped organize on Maui on Saturday. HPR's Catherine Kluwe-Pactel spent time on Maui over the last few days, one of the places where she talked with people to get a sense of what their lives are like right now was upcountry Maui. Catherine's back on Molokai this morning, and that's where she joins us with more 
Catherine, good morning. You got around several parts of Maui, but a lot of that was was upcountry where they have a series of challenges right now. It was. Good morning, Bill. Um, so Kula residents have been battling ongoing fires, um, and they mentioned that a lot of folks that they've heard from don't realize that they're still going on there. This was on Friday that I spoke with them, so I'm not sure if they're still up there in the woods uh, battling alongside the helicopters doing airdrops um, today, but they're also having a lot of challenges with water, um, as we've heard from many folks um, they are not able to bathe in their water. They're advised not to um, boil the water to use it for any purpose. They're not able to wash dishes. Um, and so that's been a big challenge for them. Water um, at Volunteer Hubs was a huge resource that was being distributed. And these Volunteer Resource Hubs are just incredible. Um, the folks that I spoke to had set up um, next to Kula Lodge, and they had been there from from the day the fire started, um, handing out supplies and, you know, going out every day into those gulches alongside firefighters. A Kula resident, Kyle Ellison's home, was the first in the area to be evacuated when the fire started on August 8th. He helped this uh, form this community hub with his his fellow residents that has done a tremendous amount of work. I can't even quantify how many high six figures this would have all cost us to bring in this labor, bring in this machinery, and it's all been 100% donated. We're not an aid organization. We're not a nonprofit. We are just a bunch of neighbors and people taking care of each other, organizing food donations for hundreds of people, multiple meals per day, to actively putting out hotspots and flare-ups, to removing hundreds of tons of green waste from people's yards on donated chippers in donated dump trucks and with donated tools. The amount that's being accomplished up here right now is just unbelievable. You know, and Catherine, that, that idea of people jumping into action, just see that in, in so many places right now and in so many different ways. And, and at a time that is very difficult for these people who are taking these actions. It is. You know, people who lost their homes were there volunteering and helping out other folks who were in similar situations. Um, you know, just across Maui, communities are coming together in, in an incredible way, as, as so many folks have, have talked about. Another thing that struck me about being on Maui was just the, the collective trauma that everyone's dealing with. Um, a lot of people are still in shock. A lot of people are still missing loved ones, of course. You know, they're checking that list daily of identified victims to see if, if the folks that they're missing are on there. And right now, everyone is just putting their heads down to work and, and kind of keep their minds busy. And again, just helping each other out in these in these amazing ways of, of coming together. Here's Ellison and Kula again. He's talking about the breaking point that everyone has been facing. You may be doing something for people that you may feel is small, especially on your sixth, seventh, eighth day in a row of volunteering or whatever it is. But you don't know where that person's point is, where it all is just going to hit them because a lot of people are running on adrenaline. A lot of people are in shock, denial, processing their own emotions. And everybody is going to hit that point of realization when the adrenaline calms down and you start thinking and it just kind of hits you. And it hits people in different ways and different times. It's a very personal journey, really, that is going to be there for a very long time and is with these people right now. It is. And, you know, for Ellison, he talked about that point being when he, you know, he's been out there volunteering. He, his home, uh, he's grateful, was not burned down, um, though they did have to evacuate and their home is, is unusable right now with uh, covered in smoke and ash. And he was sending his kids to school on their first day uh, with cloth target bags instead of backpacks. And uh, that, that just really, you know, hit him that he had been so busy, um, you know, fighting the fires that he, he wasn't able to, to get them backpacks, replacements from <laughs> from what had been mm -hmm. in their house. And for someone else I spoke to um, whose home burned in Lahaina, it was a few days later that it hit him. And he said his, his three-year-old, out of the blue, just told him, Daddy, we made it. And he just <laughs> he just lost it. You know, that, that was that moment for him where, where everything sunk in 
as we heard from um, Jill Takuda just now, you know, just listening felt like the most important thing. And, and so many folks, you know, weren't ready to share their stories, um, but just wanted to talk about it. And um, yeah, you know, just in Kula, folks felt really resilient and energetic despite the exhaustion of, of all the work they've been doing every day. And in Lahaina, it was a different kind of resiliency. You know, it's heavy. You can feel that weight that everyone's carrying in talking to folks who lost their homes, who lost their jobs, folks who lost their loved ones, um, people whose homes were saved, but they are there supporting, you know, others who lost so much. Uh, just felt like it didn't really matter who lost what. It was just this collective weight that everyone is carrying Here's Kanamu uh, Balinbin. He and his wife helped organize a community hub in Kahana where they've been working 24-7 really for the past, you know, nearly two weeks since the fire. Balinbin lives just outside of Lahaina and he talked about sharing that weight of his community. While my house wasn't burnt down, all my friends, all my cousins, the, the plantation area in Mala where I grew up, my grandma's house, my auntie's house, all my cousins live down there. It's all gone. And we spent a lot of time down there. So, you know, we have, all have extended families. We hurt when they hurt. We celebrate when they celebrate. So, like there's a saying, you know, Lahaina is one town, one community, one people. You know, while we're fortunate to, to have our house, you know, we open it up to, to our cousins and our family members and friends who, who are displaced. And we pretty much just sleep down here so they can have their space at our house. And But of course, they're there for like half an hour, then they come down here to help. So that's the way That's the way a lot of people are coping, by helping other people that lost more than they did. You know, that, that collective weight and those collective efforts uh, so much, and, and you see that all over. I mean, I spent some, some time around Lahaina as well, and as you said, most people aren't really ready to tell their stories yet. They, they, they will, there will be time, but, but many people, this is such an individual process as well as with neighbors. It's, um, there is a lot there. What, what about you for, for a sense of just going through that for a few days and, and coming home? What, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think one of the biggest lessons and takeaways for me was you know, there's such intense media coverage of this fire right now. Um, you know, as reporters, everyone is trying to share, you know, the worst of the stories. And, you know, of course, there are just, you know, I've cried listening to some of the stories. You know, they're mm -hmm. just so heart-wrenching. But from what I saw um, and w the folks that I talked to, you know, some folks were, of course, physically affected differently. But everyone is affected in some way. Everyone has a story to share. Everyone is carrying this this weight together um you know for kyle and kula even though you know these guys are, are covered in uh, ash and soot you know coming from, from putting out fires in the gulches they're like you know our, our hearts are with lahaina where they've lost so much more and one guy in lahaina that i spoke to um you know was telling me how he got his family of 13 out of their home you know just in time before it burned and but he was like, you know, the real heroes are my friends who spent the night in the ocean to escape the fire with their young kids. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was just like, you know, no one is, is no one's story is more important than the other. You know, mm -hmm. everyone has these stories. And um, again, just, just listening is, is really important. Just listening. Thank you so much. Mahalo, Catherine Clute. Uh, been talking with HPR's Catherine Clute Pactel. If you'd like to help those impacted by the fires in Kula or West Maui, we have a list of ways you can help on our website hawaiipublicradio.org look for Maui Fire Relief ways you can help Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Judith Orloff. 
author of The Empath Survival Guide. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about life strategies for sensitive people. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the outrigger Waikiki, presenting Nanakuli singer-songwriter Fia, performing songs such as Love Me, August 23rd and 29th. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, we take a look at the misogyny and homophobia that dominated hip-hop music and how it's changed. It's girls and gays running things now, according to Sydney Matten, host of the NPR podcast Louder Than a Riot. We talk with Matten and her co-host Rodney Carmichael. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. you've been hearing volunteer groups around the state are pitching in for Maui. They're helping with basic efforts on the ground from food and water to shelter. Local nonprofits are also doing what they can. On Saturday morning, I went to the Federal Emergency Management Agency Center in the UH Maui campus. That's where I spoke with Lisa Grove, who's on the board of the Maui United Way. That group is offering simple help, cash, $1,000 for anyone in the fire zone. Yeah, so we are offering direct financial assistance to adults within the fire zone, both in Lahaina and Kula. And we're distributing the funds after people have been vetted and approved to make sure that they're living in the zone. Um, $1,000 and it can go on a PayPal, Venmo. We can do direct deposits into bank accounts. And we also have the plastic Visa cards for people. And what we're seeing is, you know, the help has been really great for folks, but we're one of the most culturally diverse islands, places in America. And comfort food for me may be different than comfort food for a Koshrayan or a Filipino person or a Hawaiian person. And we feel it's really important to make sure that we give and empower the people who are in this very tragic situation with the resources they need to get what they want as they're out and now that the roads are open and they can go and get their own groceries or buy their own needs. So you're not getting for them, you're empowering them to get for themselves, basically. Right. And that's not to take anything away from the great relief efforts that have happened and the food and the supplies and the water and all the things that have happened. We just feel like this is one thing that gives them dignity. It empowers them and it lets them have agency over their lives. And right now they have very little control over anything in their lives, but being able to have some money they can spend as they see fit feels very important to us right now. You know, just coming to the disaster center, you see people from the community all over, volunteers, really an an outpouring. It's beautiful. I mean, that's the one shining light, the one rainbow in this very dark time is how much people have come out to do what we need. This is a community that's always stepped up, but seeing what's happening here is what keeps us inspired. And then hearing the gratitude from the people who have suffered so much when they see that outpouring of support and it's hugs, it's volunteers, it's resources and dollars, all of that is making a big difference. We're really trying to focus on the the financial assistance piece because we wanna make sure that we can continue to give people what they need and what they want when they want it. Thank you, anything else to add? Because a lot of the folks, or some folks still in the impacted area don't have access to internet, we have a 211 number deployed and a whole team of people ready to take applications over the phone. We can provide translation services. We've granted out money to help people get access to their documents and the ID that they're going to need, not just to qualify for this assistance, to move through life. We're also granting up money. We've helped, we've funded over... 15 grants to local nonprofits to provide mental health counseling, Native Hawaiian uh, medical services. We're um, helping our local farmers make sure that they're distributing the food to the community. So instead of bringing things from off island, um, which is happening and, and again, very great. We also want to make sure that we're elevating our homegrown businesses, our, our local farmers, and to help our local families, locals helping locals. 
So just calling 211 is a way to get started. That's exactly right. And it's really important that people understand that because for a lot of people, I've been, I've been taking some of the calls from the fire survivors and they're a little confused because they've never, 211, what, what is that? And how, do I, how does that work? And it's really simple, just three numbers. 211 will get you the help you need. Lisa, Lisa Grove on the board of the Maui United Way. If you need their help, just a phone call away. Just call 211. That can get you immediate help. We crave connections. It's human nature to want to know what's happening in your community, in the news, and with each other. And we need those connections now more than ever. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio helps keep you connected, engaged, and enriched. Wherever you are, whatever's happening in the world, stay connected on the HPR app or ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, opened its first disaster recovery center on Maui last Wednesday. Residents affected by the recent wildfires can apply for federal assistance at the center, and that's the one we were just talking about, located at the University of Hawaii Maui College. Tables are set up, community volunteers can guide you right in, but people do have a limited time to get their claims in, and the clock started ticking days before the center opened. HPR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote has more on that. Good morning, Savannah, and the clock. Uh, That's an important point on timing. Yes, good morning, Bill. There are a lot of different nuances to this process, and the first one that I found out was actually the deadline for folks to get their initial claim in, so not the appeals process, is within 60 days of the disaster declaration. So that was August 10th, about Mm. five days before we saw that center actually open. And the legal experts that I talked to say that That can be extended by a direct request from the governor, which does happen in many instances, but don't count on it. Please, as much as you can, try to get your initial claim for assistance in within those 60 days. You know, and a lot of this, we're talking a lot about paperwork and and identification (laughs) and these things. People say, my God, with what's going on right now. But this is crucial because this is, again, setting up for, for the long term. Absolutely. Another point that legal experts told me about this application process is it's one application for you. Mm. Then FEMA goes through and sees what you are eligible for based on what information you have provided. So that is a number of distance, different assistant programs like the cash assistance of $700. Mm. Um, also, temporary housing in hotels. FEMA is really looking to transition people out of shelters and into hotel rooms. I was on a call with the head administrator, Diane Criswell, and she said that there's about 150 people currently still in shelters. The rest have been brought to hotel rooms. But that number is that number fluctuates. People Mm. might stay a night in the shelter and then have an opportunity to stay with a family member for a night and then come back. So it isn't really a targeted point. There is also further financial assistance that's going to come in rebuilding. And so all of your eligibility for all of those programs depends on you being able to file this initial claim. And there's significant hurdles in people being able to do so. You know, the point about housing is an important one, too, because, you know, you had the shelters, the shelters reducing in numbers, moving folks to hotel rooms. But you also have so many people who are staying with friends, crashing with relatives, doing what they can, and and there's a a short-term sort of immediate response to this. People, sure, hey, you know what, we can we can fit five people in the living room if we need to on, on this, but that, over time, this also shifts, and, and FEMA is going to be able to pick up some of the slack over time, presumably, as well. Right, so we do see that FEMA tries to um, provide this kind of interim short-term to long-term housing as Mm. folks are rebuilding. In other communities, they have set up trailers um, where there is not sufficient hotel room stock. However, the legal experts that I did say, talk to say that after 18 months, FEMA will start to charge rent for that type of housing. Mm. (laughs) So there are barriers to this idea of long-term free housing for folks. However, it is available now and they are encouraging people to take it. 
And back to those, those that short term and barriers right now. Yes. So one of the main challenges people are having, and we heard about this with Representative Takuda, is people just having the documentation that they need in mm. order to complete this application. A lot of people lost everything in the fires, and so getting them documents, social security numbers, as well as documentation of property that was damaged, you're not thinking about taking photos yeah. <laughs> while you're fleeing for your life. That's proving to be a real challenge. And then there's barriers that exist within the FEMA process for certain populations, like undoc- undocumented individuals as well as incarcerated ind- individuals. Cassie Ordonio, our HBR reporter, is covering that very effectively. Um, but I talked to the attorney, Caitlin Morgenstern, who co-founded the emergency legal responders, and they really work just in across the U.S. and in different territories to get people to understand what rights they do have in a crisis. And Morgenstern says that you can get dinged for a lot of little things in this process. Like if you're a roommate and you both fill out an application and you share a residence, FEMA might ding that as fraud. But please, please appeal your application so that you get what you are owed. And please apply in the first in the first place. A lot of people do not apply because they do not think they're eligible. And then there is misinformation that discourages people from applying as well. That point on misinformation is an important one as well, generally through this whole process. Yeah, and we're seeing that play a huge role here. Um, One rumor that's circulating, especially on social media, is that if you apply for FEMA aid, the federal government has the right to seize your land through eminent domain. And eminent domain, for folks for whom that term is not familiar, is the right of a government entity to take private property for public use. And I brought this up um, with Morgenstern, who says that this fear actually comes up in many of the communities that she's worked with, particularly in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Maria. And it is not true. Nowhere in the Stafford Act, which gives FEMA its powers, does it say that an organization, that the organization has a right to take your land. But, and this is more of a nuanced point, states and local governments do have eminent domain laws. When there are concerns about eminent domain, more of the concerns are with state and local governments after a disaster. So they can come in and use eminent domain for areas that are maybe so-called blighted under state or local municipal laws. And then, you know, we habitate these areas. This is something we're seeing now in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is in the southwestern part of the state for homes that were damaged during Hurricane Laura, which was back in 2020. What happened there is some homeowners just didn't have full ability to repair or rebuild their property because of insufficient insurance and not enough monies. And the, you know, local government is coming in and declaring these houses blighted. That is what I think people need to, you know, worry about if you're thinking about eminent domain FEMA is there to provide some monetary assistance to people. And if the assistance is available, we think that people should take it because it is one step on the way to rebuilding. So when I talk to other local attorneys as well as cultural practitioners about this particular rumor, they really encouraged people to think about the context under which this disaster is happening to think about its power. One, There is a distrust that many communities have towards the U.S. intervening in local affairs because of the history of the U.S.'s involvement in the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom. Many people pointed to that. But also, there is the current context of people hearing about predatory realtor practices coming in Mm. and trying to take land from them while they're simply figuring out what remains for them. So people are very scared and this misinformation is preying on those particular fears. But once again, the legal responders say you are owed this aid. Mm. (laughs) This aid is going to help you rebuild and so please take advantage of it while it's available. And to be clear, just in terms of filling out this FEMA application as a gateway to so much potential future aid as well, it's it's critical importance for folks who have lost so much at this time. Absolutely. And 
They also acknowledge that FEMA aid is limited in what it can provide. And I think we're already seeing that now. And in the communities that they work in, it's really local organizations, like we've heard with Catherine in our previous segment, that are filling in those gaps. And a lot of those local organizations themselves are going to be increasingly dependent on federal aid. So it's an entire process uh, working together. Thank you, Savannah, Thank for you, reporting Bill. on this. Uh, we've been talking with HBR Savannah Harriman Poe. You can read more about this topic and catch up on her previous stories at hawaiipublicradio.org. This Thursday and Friday, HPR is fundraising on air and online to help the Maui community recover from the devastating fire in Lahaina. 100% of your donations will go to the Hawaii Community Foundation's Maui Strong Fund. Please join us as we come together to support Maui. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Science program in travel industry management. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. I'm Carol Hills. Next time on The World, two key elections in Latin America this weekend with Democratic principles on the line. In Guatemala, they want free and fair elections. In Ecuador, it's also about crime and poverty. Voters in Ecuador and Guatemala weigh in. We'll have the results next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. diversity is something we all celebrate, but there's an element of that diversity that can pose a unique challenge to those who are coordinating relief and recovery efforts. And that has to do with communication, specifically with some of the island's immigrant population. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonia has been, been following this, really, has been following this over some time, and, and has spoken with immigration advocates, lawyers about addressing that issue. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Appreciate that. And appreciate the reporting on this, which really is a, is a topic that some people don't necessarily think about as part of, uh, as part of this story. And it is a, it's a pretty interesting story, and it was actually very um, – it was interesting reporting it, too, because the Lahaina's immigrant population face a unique challenge after the impact of the wildfires. Many have lost their vital documents like birth certificates, passports, IDs, and even green cards. And what immigrant families are needing are translators to understand how to get their documents back, how to apply for housing, or even those who may qualify for, for FEMA relief, and what will be next, to, uh, next for them. I spoke with one Maui resident. Her name is Alejandra Ramirez. She's been volunteering at the shelters in Wailuku. She also volunteers at Roots Reborn Lahaina, which is a group of advocates and lawyers. Uh, she created this Instagram page called Roots Reborn Lahaina, where she posts information about the fires and um, what to, uh, how to apply for FEMA or how to apply for housing. And it's translated in Spanish and even Ilocano. She's hoping that more will be translated like in um, the Galog or any Pacific Islander languages mm -hmm. in the future. And um, what I've also found out is that Latinos make up 11% of the population in Hawaii. In Lahaina in particular, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, they make up a little over 13%. And Latinos and other immigrants in Lahaina have this interesting um, history in the historic town. We are a small island, but our immigrant population is huge. I grew up in Maui, and I had no idea we had so many Hispanics, Filipinos, Cubans, Argentinas in Lahaina. Lahaina was a small city, small town, but it was full of immigrants. Immigrants basically 
took up a big chunk of that town because they work in the food service industry. They worked in the hotels. They worked at the restaurants. They were the ones serving people. So a lot of them, they lost their jobs, their cars, their houses. So they need all the help they can get. And Alejandra Ramirez, um, she's been um, working on the ground in Maui. She conducted outreach on social media like Facebook. Uh, She was calling for translators. And with luck, she actually had over 100, actually 100, specifically 114 people volunteered to translate in multiple languages, which is good. It's mostly Spanish. Uh, You have even German, American Sign Language, um, other Pacific Islander languages. People are um, volunteering from across Hawaii. They're even volunteering from the mainland and other countries as well. That, boy, that point of connection, really important. It, you know, and you brought up an interesting point with this, and, and she did as well, in terms of the population of Lahaina. One of the things that I, I just heard from some folks on, on Maui, not wanting to say it into a microphone, but was that, you know, some people keep calling Lahaina, oh, the resort town of Lahaina, and, and you know, that's not it's not like somebody compared it actually to Vail, Colorado, and it's not as if this is Vail, Colorado in the Pacific. This is, you know, a lot of folks, the diversity is much broader than, than a lot of people have uh, have indicated perhaps or, or understand. And, and we're seeing that in, in the recovery efforts as well. Exactly. And I love that you brought up that Lahaina is not just this resort town. People live there. There's generational families, mm. including even like the, um, the immigrants who come over here. They made a home for themselves as well. And um, to for them to receive help, the uh, Mexican consulate officials uh, was the first to respond. Um, as of last week, they helped out about 100 people to get their birth certificates and passports. I spoke with Cassie Yamashita of the Maui Economic Opportunity, and um, she and her co- colleagues were working on getting more representatives from Venezuela and Argentina um, and other parts of um, that area. Um, in fact, the Argentinian consulate officials also stopped by Hawaii last week to help people get their documents back. Uh, but another posing challenge is getting the immigrant communities to talk to officials. Um, I'm finding out that many are scared to speak up because um, either a language barrier or their immigration status. Um, there's been folks who are actually undocumented, so a lot of them fear um, talking to officials or even seeking help. Some are even burn victims, and they're too scared to reach out for help because they're afraid they might get deported. And um, I also um, spoke with other uh, folks in my story um, uh, who were saying that uh, many immigrant families want to receive that help, but they just kind of need help receiving that help. You know, other than language access, it's again, it's just the trust. Without the uh, availability of language providers in these remote areas, these populations aren't going to get the services or are going to be fearful to come forward to receive services. And I know that opportunities for outreach in um, the West Side is limited. I understand that there are some safety concerns and that's valid. Um, but the longer we wait for to provide these services, the longer these populations will be negatively affected. I was made aware of several individuals who are actually burn victims who do not want to come to seek assistance because they don't have somebody that speaks their language. So, you know, it is concerning. I know there's a lot of people who want to help. Access continues to be the issue, but then, you know, safety is another priority that has to take, has to be taken into consideration. You know, she mentioned a word, and you've talked about it as well, trust. Just that importance, and especially with folks coming in from, from the federal government and, and having that that gateway to trust on a local basis, um, that mechanism is really important right now where we are in, in the crisis. It's interesting, too, because even folks who are from the Latino community who fluently speak Spanish, they are also finding that challenge of getting the Latino and other immigrant populations to talk to them openly, even if their intentions are good. Like for Alejandra Ramirez, she even said that she was having trouble with folks trying to trust her a little bit because they were thinking, oh, are you from ICE or something Mm -hmm. like that? And that's where she was just like, I'm not... I'm not from ICE, I'm actually here to help you. And she came in and, um, you know, with her name tag and saying that she speaks Spanish in Spanish, 
um, which kind of helps a little bit to have the community trust her. But at the same time, there are still some barriers because there's a lot of things up in the air. There's a number of factors to why also they, the immigrant population doesn't want to talk to um, government officials or advocates other than just um, immigration status. The fact that they're still traumatized from the fires or they're still trying to locate their family members, maybe seeking help for them, is probably the last thing on their mind right now because um, maybe they want to focus more on finding their family. Really a matter of priorities and in terms of of timing on this, but it's it's another reminder of just how multi-layered this is. There are so many aspects to this uh, to this story and to this recovery process, and and trust being a key part of that, and translation being a key part of that. Cassie Ordonia, Cassie, thanks so much for covering the story and continuing to be on that. HPR's Cassie Ordonia. You can read her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you'd like to help those impacted by the fires on Maui, we have a list of ways you can help on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for the Maui Fire Relief Ways You Can Help link to that. That is the conversation for today. We've been talking about the power of community connections. Tomorrow we'll hear from someone who is definitely one of Maui's key connectors. Leslie Wilkins is a connector, a volunteer, a crucial part of the Maui community. She also happens to be the head of the Maui Economic Development Board. We'll get some perspective from her and thoughts about the short term and the long term. You know, we want to hear your stories if you're ready to tell them, especially in this time of crisis. You can reach us at our talkback line, 808-792-8217. If you missed something, want to listen back to something you heard, you can find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, anywhere you tune in. And just a reminder, tonight, beginning at 10, all HPR transmitters off the air for several hours so that we can perform planned maintenance on our main transmitter site. HPR programming will still be available via the app and streaming. I'm Bill Dorman sitting in for Catherine Cruz, back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.